Lieutenant Colonel Jason Brightman is a former U.S. Air Force pilot with one of the wildest careers I've heard of. He also happens to be my flight instructor, bringing me up to speed on the Cessna 172. Jason and I were put together by chance and by COVID at our flight school. Ordinarily, he flies for a major airline, but found himself with a whole lot of time on his hands during the summer when coronavirus almost completely shut down travel. So, he started teaching, as is his habit. His military pilot students nicknamed him Guru. Jason initially served with the Army's 1st Infantry Division Combat Engineers before transitioning into the Air Force, but he went through pilot training with the Navy. This guy's spent time with essentially every branch except Space Force. Although, we could have just not gotten to that story yet. He's full of them. While in Iraq, Jason and his team cleared the way for American and British tank battalions who came rushing through Kuwait during the famous 100-hour ground war in 1991. After joining the Air Force and going through pilot training, he flew the C-130 for a tour. But then he took an instructor pilot exchange with the Indian Air Force, where he trained a cohort of pilots that would go on to fly planes like the Sukhoi-30, known by NATO as the Flanker C. One student would even be shot down in operations near Pakistan, yet end up in a Pakistani tea commercial. More on that later. Jason then flew combat operations in a C-17 in the Iraq War, delivering Humvees and ferrying racks of wounded U.S. soldiers to safety. As if this was not enough, he then took an opportunity with the U.S. Central Command's intelligence unit and spent a lot of time in Kabul, Afghanistan, trying to patch together alliances against the Taliban. We talk about all of this and more. One other thing, I reference a couple of books during the episode. The first is an account on the first Gulf War called Hogs in the Sand by Buck Windham, a U.S. Air Force A-10 pilot who saw extensive combat in Kuwait. It's definitely worth a read as is the Pulitzer Prize-winning Ghost Wars by Steve Cole, which details the history of Afghanistan in the 1980s and 1990s and the lead-up to the attacks on September 11, 2001. Both of those links are in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed today's show and my friend Jason Brightman. We're kicking it off with his time in Iraq. The... Day I flew in, so I flew out of uh, Georgia, landed in Riyadh, which is the capital of uh, Saudi Arabia. As soon as it got dark, we were at the airport and Scud missiles started going off. We started getting alarms. Everyone put their gas masks on. We're at the airport. My first night there, I've been there for 45 minutes. Um, Scud missiles are going off. Patriots are going up to intercept the Scud missiles. I'm seeing this. There's Patriot batteries all around the airport. And Patriots are intercepting Scud missiles. And I'm listening to the Super Bowl. I'm under a Connex truck of like equipment to, for cover. And we're watching basically a fireworks show with the, the Patriot missiles. Um, defending this or shooting down the scud missiles it was surreal were you scared it, it was more titillating than it was fearful there was never a time during that first night introduction to saudi arabia and scud missiles and patriot missiles that i saw one land close or saw somebody bleeding out or anything like that there yeah. wasn't any any of that the zero account that i read basically most of his experience 
on the ground was sleeping and taking cover from scud <laughs> missiles and none of them ever impacted nearby and it was it just sounded like whittling time away hiding from scuds that never hit and then the occasional taste of action yeah that seems like what modern war is that's that was my experience as well tons of boredom tons of monotony tons of bureaucratic red tape oh my god i can't believe we have to do this followed by holy shit we get to do that you know those are things that are definitely sprinkled in nice the next question I had was if you could kind of talk a little bit about your transition into the Air Force and how you ended up flying planes with the Navy. Okay. Yeah. Moved on to college and got into Air Force ROTC, like I mentioned, from trying to talk Erica out of joining Air Force ROTC. She talked me into it. And the Air Force offered me the pilot slot. That was the first time I was like, I could go fly airplanes. I should figure out what that looks like. So... So then they offered me the choice of where to go to pilot training. And there was kind of, uh, you know, dusty places in Texas, um, Mississippi, and things like that for the Air Force. And then there was an option to go on exchange with the Navy in Pensacola, Florida. Growing up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, I'm a beach guy. I had seen the movie Top Gun, um, Pensacola, Florida, Navy, Top Gun. That sounds great. I'm going to go to flight training with the Navy. So the first plane I flew in Pensacola was a T-34. It's a turboprop single engine. It's the, it was the Navy's trainer at the time. Um, and we had a mix of instructors there. Most of, most of them were Navy and Marines. But there were a couple Air Force instructors there at that Navy unit teaching us as well. So as an Air Force officer flying Navy planes, I had a good mix of instructors to sort of mentor me. And they're trying to figure out, you know, this is this is the stage of training where they sort of figure out which direction you're going to head in. Are you going to be a fighter pilot? Are you going to be a transport pilot? Are you going to be a helicopter pilot? Um, and I knew very clearly early on that I was a transport kind of guy. I, was, I had no desire to do the fighter pilot thing just because it was so intense and very, um, uh, it was just a very competitive environment yeah. to kind of get into. And I sort of opted out right. and probably would have never made it anyway. Well, there's a lot of cool perks to being a transport pilot, right? I mean, it, like it, travel it, and I mean, you're constantly going around the world. It much more suited my personality, and I kind of knew right. that right away. As soon as I met some of the transport pilot Air Force guys versus the fighter pilot Air Force guys, I was like, oh, I can see these two camps, and I know which one I'm in. Um, so with that, um, if you went from the T-34 to Air Force C-130s, which were transport planes, uh, our transport planes, you would probably go through, continue on with the Navy for the second stage of training and go through Corpus to fly the King Air, which is the um, Navy's multi-engine trainer. And that's what sort of lined me up with the C-130 for the next, my first operational plane in the uh, Air Force. Um, Graduated, got my wings from the Navy in January of 2000 and went on to uh, fly C-130s for a couple of years down in Tucson, Arizona um, as a co-pilot, first officer, co-pilot, in a 
airborne command and control mission uh, for the C-130s that were there. Right. We didn't do normal transport stuff. We did an airborne command and control mission, kind of like J-STARS or AWACS, but on a right. smaller scale. Gotcha. Um, so our unit in Tucson was shutting down, and our squadron commander needed to find jobs for all his pilots. So this is uh, late 2001, after 9-11 had already happened. Um, and he came back with a bunch of uh, various Air Force assignments, and he also had this one weird one to India to go be a, an exchange instructor pilot. Um, so for the first couple of years of the U.S. response to 9-11, I was off in India as an instructor pilot. So we show up, or I show up, and um, go through a six-month instructor course, uh, which is the hardest academic course I've ever been through, by far. Why is that? Um, I had failed Algebra two twice in high school, and I was not a math guy. I rolled into the Indian Air Force uh, instructor school, and they are all about the math. <laughs> they had, um, it was about a six-month course. I think we had 22 tests every Saturday. And I'm pretty sure they probably still have my records. I don't think I got more than a 40% on any of their tests. <laughs> it, yeah. was, it was a grueling course, and it was just embarrassing to go over there and show them how, you know, unintelligent I was. And I can't, like, <laughs> math. And it was well, just terrible. They, like, really didn't know what to do with me they're like wow. we want to almost send you home but you fly really well so yeah. we'll let you stay well i suppose that's the important part right <laughs> i think so, so. You yeah know, you know where i fall in that yeah so um so like how, how did how do you come up to speed on a completely foreign plane that kind of looks like a fighter you've been flying cargo like right how's that work so i mean my exposure up to you know for aerobatics and stuff like that was really limited to my few hours in the t-34 from the navy um and then i had spent a couple of years flying heavy uh U u.s air force planes around c-130s um but flying is flying and you would be surprised how much your 30 hours in a cessna would translate to you know 737 flying or whatever it's just all kind of you know little nuanced differences but right so, but, so what was the what were the characteristics of this plane that you transitioned to? Though? All right, like, so it's called a Kieran. I think it was a Kieran Mark Mark II. I'm not sure what that means, but um, single engine jet trainer, uh, centerline thrust. It's the truest plane I've ever flown because you know, flying a propeller, that you need a bunch of right rudder. You have all these different factors going on. This thing was just a straight jet, right down the center. Um, you add the power; it it was there. Uh, had Martin Baker ejection seat. Um, they use it for their demonstration team. It's the same plane that their Thunderbirds use to uh, do their air shows. Right. Uh, but it was their um, it was their advanced trainer for the guys that were on the jet track for or the fighter track for India. Awesome. And was it supersonic? It wasn't. No. Oh. It would. Uh, I think. It would probably top out around 350 knots or something, if Still I had to guess. Still pretty good clip. <laughs> it's all relative. I mean, speed is speed. I think, uh, you know, when you're flying around with a student who's barely hanging in there, you know, just going 200 knots is pretty fast for them. So, um, 
Tell me about that time that you had to almost choke out the student. <laughs> Angud and I were flying around on essentially a cross country. Um, we're going from one air base to another. So we're trying to climb over these clouds and it's right about at our uh, service ceiling. So we're just trying to get over them and we're sort of pitched up and it's very difficult to see the actual horizon. So I'm relying a lot on the uh, artificial horizon, which sucks. And by the student's left arm on the sidewall of the airplane is an inverter switch, which will provide you the electric power that you need for these instruments to work. These instruments that aren't all that helpful to begin with. In Angad's excitement about what we're trying to do, he keeps elbowing the switch and actually removing the power to this instrument. <laughs> and so I'm... The Indian instructors that I've flown with have been like, you're too nice in the, in the cockpit. You guys, you kind of give these guys a tap every now and then, you know, wake them up if they're not, you know, give them a little nudge, uh, a little bit of forceful nudge. And, and I would never do that. It's, I'm not going to be the American that, you know, gets a reputation for beating up Indian students in my, in my <laughs> cockpit. But uh, we had also been taught a maneuver or a technique to sort of if you need to get their attention like and they're sort of locking out on you or whatever you can grab their oxygen mask and sort of like or oxygen connection and sort of like shake their head a little bit and just sort of wake them up um i ended up having to do that with Angud <laughs> on this because i needed that inverter to work for me because i needed that artificial horizon pretty bad and uh he had knocked it off twice and so i just had to give him a little bit of a wake up so yeah um why does the Indian Air Force use primarily Russian aircraft? Uh, that comes out of the Cold War. And India, we are, this is a history lesson right now. So India got its independence in 1947. Um, they, were cons they considered themselves non-aligned when the two powers of the West and the Soviet Union sort of uh, became these uh, opposing forces throughout the next few decades and the Indians were non-aligned. Um, they didn't want to get too close to either side, but uh, the U.S. largely supported Pakistan with arms and the Indians largely got uh, their stuff from the Russians or the Soviets back in the day. That has since changed quite a bit. Uh, the Indians have C-17s, the Indians have C-130J models, um, both of which they got after my tour there. So maybe there was something to that uh, building, <laughs> building relations. Yeah, you choke out enough students and then you get a good reputation and yeah. Um, but we, we have definitely warmed our relations over the last uh, 10, 15 or so more years with the Indians and have become more natural allies that I think that we always kind of should have been, in my personal opinion. Um, but the Indian fighter fleet, they, the Navy had had Harriers at one point. Um, they currently have replaced the Kirin with uh, T-45 um, aircraft, which is what our Navy trains with as well. Um, so they've definitely gone out and gotten aircraft from wherever they've been able to. Right. 
So it was kind of like Cold War alignments dictated how arms were sold to Pakistan versus India. Yes. So Pakistan got the F-16s from us. Right. And that put a lot of things that had a lot of, excuse me, second and third order consequences, right. uh, especially vis-a-vis -vis India and the U.S. Right. And so you were telling me about a student that you had who uh, actually saw combat maybe unintentionally over Pakistan uh, he was shot down. Oh no, this was a firefight. This was a dog. Oh. This was a modern day year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, dogfight over the Indian-Pakistani border. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So there was a recent flare-up uh, about two years ago or so, uh, some terrorist attacks from one side and some retaliation to the other, and these things sort of escalate there as they've happened, they've done in the past quite frequently. Um, and Wing Commander, who was my, one of my students, uh, Wing Commander Abhinandan, uh, took a MiG-21 and had a package, a strike package, and they were going to hit some terrorist camps in Pakistan. Um, he ended up getting shot down, uh, they believe, by an F-16. Um, there's, I think the Pakistanis had launched a couple of planes. I'm not, how the whole thing went down, I'm not exactly sure. Um, so I'd be speaking out of turn. But ultimately, Abhinandan uh, ejected, had his, he got shot, out, shot down out of his MiG-21, ejected, landed on the Pakistani side, got picked up by the Pakistani army eventually after getting kind of beat up by a, a Pakistani civilian mob. Oh, um, in a lot to a large extent, I would say that the Pakistani army saved his life because it probably wouldn't have gone too well for him if they hadn't interjected. Um, they held him for a couple of days, 60 hours, I think. Uh, very tense times. I was kind of on WhatsApp with all my students and other instructors that I'd flown with and very concerned about him and kind of getting as much information as I could as we were all sort of holding our breath. And then the government of Pakistan released him. Uh, he walked across the very famous border between India and Pakistan where they have a ceremony every day. Right. Um, the guy is kind of like parading around in this sort of like uh, yeah, a dance almost. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Very, yeah. very ceremonial and right. kind of alpha right, right. antagonistic. Yeah. They, uh, they take like their, uh, their tallest dudes. Right. Absolutely. And, and it's like peacocking. Sure. If you haven't yeah. seen this uh, for your listeners or whatever, right. if you YouTube the probably, I don't know what it's called, the retreat ceremony between India yeah. and Pakistan on the, I think it's the Waga border or water Waga checkpoint or something like that. Yeah. Sounds familiar. Um, it's a fantastic display of military ceremony. Right. Pretty interesting. Um, but Abhinandan walked across there with his ridiculously awesome handlebar mustache um, that you have to see to believe and came back and got repatriated. Uh, while he was in captivity, um, he's kind of a Indian legend and deservedly so in my opinion, he was pretty badass. And... This doesn't surprise any of us at all, because as a cadet, when we were training him, his dad had been an air marshal. So he sort of came in with way more experience and understanding of what was going on than his peers. Mm. And even as a cadet, it was really kind of hard to ruffle him. He, was, he wasn't maybe the 
number one pilot, but he was pretty unflappable. So we would try to stress them out with like emergency scenarios or whatever, and he would just be able to really handle whatever stress we put at him. Nice. Um, which was very clear. So here he is shot down in Pakistan, being interrogated by the Pakistani army. And he is no kidding, like big four, nothing more is what we call it in the, uh, in the U.S. military training, which is basically name, uh, service number, you know, date of birth or something like that. I don't remember what it exactly was. But here's, here are the minimum things I can tell you, and I'm not telling you anything else. And that's the way Abedandan handled his business while he was in captivity with Pakistan. Pakistanis released videos of this, which was pretty fascinating because, I mean, it really put Abedandan in a great light. I was surprised that they would be releasing videos of this. Yeah. Um, they didn't have to. <laughs> um, I can't imagine them going easy on you. Uh, it, it seems like... If I had to guess about conditions inside of a Pakistani army uh, prison, so to speak, it would not be uh, nice. Well, so you and I have had a bit of these conversations before, and there's sort of like these, in my, my theory is that there's like this iceberg and there's these like levels of the iceberg. So if you're at the ice level of the iceberg where you're in some enemy's uh, prison system, I would imagine that could be absolutely terrible. But if you're a high visibility fighter pilot that just got shot down, the whole world knows about you. There's video of you out there from cell phones. They know that you're alive. You're very likely, and in this case he was, probably treated not as bad as you might otherwise be concerned. Right, because there's sort of like political <clears throat> blowback if he was, you know, it's sort of a tit for tat yeah, kind I, of thing. I mean, if you want to cool things down, right which it seems that Pakistan did, yeah. you release him in 60 hours, you release him in pretty good condition. And I mean, this is just one of those hilarious side vignettes that sort of, you can't make up, but there's a Pakistani tea company that, um, okay, so I have to give you the background. In one of his interrogation videos, Abhinandan's sitting there and he's being asked by some off-camera Pakistani military interrogator, tell us which unit you're working with. And he's like, sir, I'm sorry, I cannot tell you. Abhinandan's just, you know, not answering any of these questions. And you can sort of, you know, clearly they know what kind of, I think he said something like, I'm pretty sure you know what kind of plane I fly, sir. You shot it down, you should be able to see the wreckage. Right. And then so the, you can hear like the, amusement and this is my own personal like take on it but the amusement but also like the bafflement of like the pakistani interrogator and he's like well can you at least tell me how you like the tea because they had given him like some chai some pakistani tea and abhinandan on the video and you have to watch it lights up and he's like sir the tea is fantastic <laughs> so i think within like a week or two the pakistani tea company had spliced together Abhinandan's interrogation video and turned it into a no kidding Pakistani tea company advertisement for with Abhinandan's video in there is having him say that the tea is fantastic. Wow. I mean, that sort of in my kind of sense of humor view describes South Asia in a nutshell. Like yeah. only there could that happen. Right. And we would never really understand that. Right. Like, it's not something that would happen with the U.S. and, you know, the Germans in World War II or something. I'm going to dig up that YouTube video. Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll send it to you. And, I can and, find it. Nice. We'll put that on the, 
and the show notes. You spent a lot of time with the IAF, um, kind of training up these these folks. What was what kind of then led you into the the Iraq conflict? Uh, how did that work? So then I finished my India assignment, and with my India assignment, I came back to the states and transitioned into a C-17. And that's when my Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom Flying really kicked off. And this was, I told you that flight instructor school was the hardest thing I ever did academically. Uh, Flying-wise, the hardest thing I ever did, flying-wise, was transitioning directly into the left seat of a C-17 that was being used all over the world in a combat uh, role, combat support role, um, and that plane was massively capable. My co-pilots that were nominally um, my second in command had a thousand hours in that plane and probably half that time was combat time. They were very experienced and it was very humbling to be the aircraft commander, excuse me, flying all around the world in one of those things, doing uh, a lot of deployed missions in theaters. What are the what are kind of like the flight characteristics of the C seventeen? Like, is it is it kind of? It, I have to imagine it's kind of like flying like a seven forty seven or something like that. It looks like a big transport plane. Yeah, I've never flown a operational major weapon system fighter plane, but that's what I imagine they would fly like is a C seventeen. A C seventeen's performance is absurd. Um, it's by far the most impressive machine I've ever put my hands on. Um, it's got four massive engines. Its thrust weight to ratio is great performance uh, thrust-wise. It can carry a ton. Its brakes and uh, landing gear system allow it to stop in very short fields to include unprepared fields. I've shown you pictures of us landing on dirt strips. It can land in 3,000 foot strips and have a 1,000 foot remaining. Wow. And it could easily land at, at San, San Carlos? Carlos. No way. Yes. Wow. If you uh, look up a uh, video of a C-17 accidentally landing at Knight Field in Tampa when they were trying to land at McDill, you see them accidentally land at this very small airstrip and get on the brakes and stop before they ran out of runway. And wow. they had the four-star commander of Central Command on board. Wow. Not a good day for those pilots. <laughs> I bet not. So in terms of its um, sort of, does it have any defensive capabilities? It has a chaff and flare system. Yeah, it has all that. So it has a uh, missile warning system and a chaff and flare system. If you see some pictures of a C-17, um, a lot of them are at night when they show like the flares coming out. It looks like just a bomb burst emanating from the C-17, which is terrifying when you're in a 30 or 40 degree bank turn uh, right off the ground in Baghdad because you just flew over the burn pit, which happened to me. So you take off and these sensors, because there's a burn pit, you heard about these burn pits at all these outlying fields. Yeah, is it just like oil on fire or something? Or? Well, these are mostly in deployed locations where it's just the troops on the ground collecting all the shit, the trash, the everything that they want to get rid of. They burn it. Um, so they're doing this at this airfield right, out, right in Baghdad International. 
we take off and that tricks or that trips our uh, missile warning system and launches flares. And so we're in a 30 to 40 degree bank turn at night over Baghdad. And all of a sudden I'm looking out the window and just all everything's glowing uh, with all these like little flare things shooting out. And it's the first time I had seen it, uh, but it was coming from our plane and it's because our flares went off. So what did you do in that situation? So you're in like this high bank turn, you start dumping flares with like, you fly the plane. You just yeah. do what you do. I mean, the plane's flying beautifully. It's got no problem. <laughs> like you're just like, oh shit. You're like, yeah. what was that? And somebody's like, oh, I think that was our flares. And so now uh, let's let's talk about. So so we've we've gone through a lot of your history, kind of bouncing around. It seems like you took a lot of really unique opportunities, and it it kind of threw you all around the world. How did this whole centcom thing come about? What, like what was that? Okay. So I'm flying C-17s around the world for a couple of years, um, doing a lot of Iraq and Afghanistan mostly. And because of my initial India experience, I got put on this short list for another opportunity. And this opportunity was to be developed, deliberately developed as a regional area strategist. Uh, it's what the Air Force calls the Foreign Area Officer. That's what the other services call it. So FAOs, Foreign Area Officer, Regional Area Strategist, or synonymous. Um, to do this, you have to go and get a master's degree and a foreign language. And so the Air Force flying community begrudgingly gave me up as a pilot that was flying C-17s for them. And big Air Force sent me off to school which was actually at the Navy Postgraduate School in Monterey and then the Defense Language Institute also in Monterey to get a master's degree in South Asia and a foreign language in Persian Farsi. Right, so that was three years of school. Uh, this is mid-career and it was awesome. I mean, I got a master's degree paid for, I got paid to go there. It was in a beautiful place and I learned a language. Right. Um, it was pretty cool. So. So is Dari the same thing as... Dari is, like is a, Persian Farsi. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. How do you say go fuck yourself? <laughs> but I, I do not remember how to say... I don't know if I ever knew how to say Well, that. you probably weren't go saying fuck that... fuck yourself in Dari. Probably, probably weren't saying that directly to the Taliban when you'd meet up with them. No, I, yeah. We, we would hold off on uh, those kind of uh, slanders. Yeah. yeah. Abuses. Um, so you've, t you've told me a little bit about... Uh, some like some broad stroke stories involving a British two star general and giant bags of cash. Uh, can you expound on what this was and what we wanted to accomplish uh, in in this and kind of that the context in which this is taking place? Sure. And with that, yeah. I hope you link in the Ghost Wars primer for anybody that's really interested in this. Uh, I will because I think that is a good starting point. Charlie Wilson's Wharf. They only want a two and a half hour uh, introduction, but um, right. So the Force Reintegration Cell, Frick, is what they called it. Um, it was under ISAF headquarters, which is the International Security Assistance Forces Afghanistan, uh, a program there in Kabul where we had about 38 people on our team, a lot of U.S., a lot of Brits, and a couple other countries were sure mixed in. Um, we worked with the Afghan High Peace Council, which was led by a former president of theirs, Professor Rabani. And they would identify Taliban, um, 
that were potentially on the on the fence. And if the way the program worked was essentially if a Taliban commander had about 50 people that reported to him, we would be interested in talking to him. This group, uh, this team that I was on, they would vet these people with our Afghan partners and sit down and we would have that conversation. And because right. I had the I had the cultural uh, training with my master's degree and the language skill with my Dari. I would sit down and kind of be the point man in these meetings and sit down with the money, have some goat and rice, meet these guys, verify that they had not fought us or maybe they would turn some weapons in or whatever, and we'd give them some money. Wow. So these were basically, I mean, my understanding of the landscape is that Afghanistan is really lots of small kind of fife it's in reality it's like a bunch of fiefdoms is kind of my understanding with with like small local warlords who kind of oversee some swath of territory and and so i mean is this is this accurate to say and like and my understanding was that basically they're a raid all around uh, afghanistan and throughout the cold war and through kind of recent times their allegiances have shifted, um, you know, first to uh, confront the Soviet invasion uh, in the 80s to pro that was there to prop up the communist government under Najibullah. But um, after that, they kind of, they switched sides to Ahmad Shah Massoud, who maybe we'll talk about in a minute. Um, and, and then the Taliban became a force and then they kind of traded their allegiance back to the Taliban and so by the time like you were on the scene, it was the case that we were then trying to kind of turn them again and 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 al align them with U.S. interests. Is that kind of an accurate capitulation or is that am I a little off there? Uh, you're hitting the general theme for sure. A lot of what you just said was spot on. Um, I think it's about 14 different ethnicities that are alive and well in Afghanistan itself. Um, and Afghanistan, when you look at it on the map, it sits in a pretty rough neighborhood. Um, number one, it's landlocked. Number two, it's very mountainous. I've shown you some pictures of us flying over uh, 35,000 feet of the terrain. Um, it's incredibly mountainous. And mountain people all over the world, whether it's Colorado Rockies or Appalachia and West Virginia or Afghanistan or South America, mountain people tend to be pretty independent and untrusting of flatlanders. You're talking to a guy from Utah, so I totally, I feel this. <laughs> You're with you know, me. Yeah, distrustful, um, distrustful my, of my, people from Massachusetts. <laughs> my dad used to um, own a convenience store in the foothills of the Colorado Rockies. So he was kind of like a uh, people from the mountains would come down to his store to do their grocery shopping. And this is like a 7-Eleven kind of a thing. So you can imagine like rolling into this, my dad's country store to do your monthly grocery shopping and like running into Flatlanders and being like, oh God, these Flatlanders. Um, so Afghans have that same kind of uh, mountain kind of approach. These mountains that are massive uh, divide these ethnicities and these tribes quite crisply uh, because it's very hard to get 
from one place to another 50 miles as the crow flies when there's a 15,000 foot peak in between you. Right. Um, so they're not trusting of Kabul. Um, right. They live in a tough neighborhood. Going back thousands of years, we're looking at they sit between the between China and Russia and Iran slash the Persian Empire and South Asia slash the British Raj when it was there. And Afghanistan sits at the crossroads of all these major empires and has never really been that major empire itself. Um, sometimes the empires sort of bleed into there. But uh, it's been a really rough neighborhood and a really rough go. The Afghans have been at war nonstop since 1979 when, as you mentioned, the Soviets invaded Kabul. And the Taliban are largely the refugee kids of the Mujahideen. And while the Mujahideen were fighting the Soviet Union, um, these Taliban kids that were growing up in the refugee camps in Pakistan were fatherless because their fathers and uncles were fighting the Soviets and rudderless. Uh, they were being raised in the madrasas and- Which are what? Uh, religious focused schools. And a lot of the madrasas were funded by Saudi Arabia and had a very um, f uh, fundamentalist or um, I'm trying to use the right religious terminology here, but a very strict interpretation of Islam. Um, and that's all these refugee kids were getting. So when they... When the Soviets left in 89, after the Mujahideen had fought them off, the Mujahideen then stayed in Afghanistan and fought against each other. Uh, Jangi Delhali is the way you say civil war in Dari. Uh, Jangi Delhali, uh, the civil war that happened between the Afghan warlords that had fought, beat off the Soviets. Uh, so these are all the hardened, war-proven Ahmad Shah Massoud in the, in the Panjshir Valley and Hekmatyar and all the different, uh, the guy Dostum up in Mazari Sharif, um, all these different warlords that had beaten off the Soviets are now fighting each other for what's left over and trying to take over Kabul and all that. These Afghan kids, or the, I'm sorry, the Taliban kids are now coming of age. They're 18, 19 years old. They're rolling in in their white pickup trucks coming out of the refugee camps. They roll into Afghanistan with their Qurans and their new version of Islam that they've been getting in the madrasas. And, right. and here and they come to wipe the, purify Afghanistan. Sure. Taliban means student. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. And that makes sense because does it refer to the them being students in the madrasas. I These, think so. that's, that kind of all ties together, I see. Yeah. What was the deal with the white pickup trucks? This figured, this figured um, prominently <laughs> in this book that you recommended to me, Ghost Wars, which I will talk about for sure in right. the introduction. Um, what's the deal with Toyota pickup trucks? I think it's just the cheapest color of paint because it's everywhere. Mm. <laughs> um, it's all over what I've seen of the Middle East. I think if you, you know, go to places that don't really care about having options in vehicle colors you see that white is kind of the standard primer color of but like toyota's <laughs> like what's i mean it seems like 
you know, there was this long history of the CIA. I mean, even bef well before you arrived on the scene, you know, right. the CIA um, kind of working with Pakistani intelligence to, this was in the effort to subvert, you know, uh, communist authority in the region. Sure. Lots of the donations, lots of the funds would you know, not only go to arms, they would go to these these pickup trucks and stuff. And I'm, I was just wondering, like, what the deal was with Toyota Toyota and made killing off of uh, the Afghan war. Well, yeah, I, I hope they were paying, getting paid top dollar uh, retail prices. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I, I don't know. I've just yeah. experienced that there's a lot of them. Not that we have to focus on Toyota. It's just like this funny thing that I noticed. Yeah. Um, but um, so the the Taliban, uh, they they sort of they had some relationship to. Al-Qaeda, I guess it was sort of like th there was a Saudi Arabian connection, right, where like uh, there, they, there were officials like with Saudi intelligence, from what I recall, that were like kind of funneling a lot of the funds and, you know, like you were saying, developing these madrasas, which were sort of the breeding grounds for what is now um, the Taliban uh, in that sort of Saudi, Saudi um, milieu, it seems like. Uh, Al-Qaeda or, or it was I don't know if that was even formed at this point kind of at the inception of the Taliban but Osama bin Laden was sort of floating around that scene um, and so what was sort of his relationship with the Taliban okay so my understanding is um, mid 1990s the Taliban starts to come into Afghanistan and starts to become the uh, the the main actor they beat off uh, they push Ahmed Shah Massoud back up into the Panjshir Valley they sort of take over different parts of Afghanistan and start to solidify their control this Taliban and it's the Taliban regime that um, was only recognized by a couple different countries I think Saudi Arabia was one of them um, and I saw something recently that there was a couple other Pakistan for sure recognized them as the legitimate right. um, government Be in Afghanistan. Because there was also, as I understand it, this intrigue where the, you know, the Pakistanis had this agenda because they, they adhere to the Sunni variant of Islam. Um, the Taliban was aligned sort of um, uh, spiritually, if you will, with the, uh, with the Pakistanis. And so like that was, I, that was my understanding of why they kind of backed them. It was like, more likely to be sort of a Pakistani-friendly um, regime. And I also re remember from this book, uh, you know, there's, there's this crazy scene that Steve Cole was describing where in Washington, D.C., there was a, an Afghan embassy um, where one of their diplomats, I'm uh, forgetting his name, was representing the, the prior, um, more secular government. And then one of i think his deputy declared for the taliban and they kind of got into this like superheated argument and then like shuffled and ended up shuffling into like different rooms in this house and it was like this awkward kind of um uh interaction inside of the embassy and then eventually the americans just closed down this embassy in washington dc because the the situation was so like ill-defined and it wasn't clear which regime actually had power and the Taliban seemed to be lobbying the United States constantly and uh, for for recognition um, but it never materialized 
Yeah, so yeah. this is this sounds like it would have been like in that late '90s, before 9/11, obviously, mm -hmm. um, kind of a period where not many people, not many countries, were recognizing the Taliban as the legitimate government. Um, I it makes sense to me that what you just described. I don't remember reading Ghost Words that it's been a while since I read it, so that all makes sense to me that there was some confusion about who actually was in charge. And I think that same confusion existed in uh, Afghanistan. So Afghanistan, uh, in the Taliban largely have a very local agenda. They're not, they couldn't f find the New York Trade Center, World Trade Center on a map. Like it w it's not something that concerns them. They're, they would have been at the time thinking, okay, we're trying to take over Afghanistan. We want Kabul. We want to have control over the population. We want to have the women all in burqas. We want to have access to the poppy fields and the opium growing because that's uh, our moneymaker. Um, and we want to have our Islamic State here set up the way we want to have our version of Islam that we learned in the refugee camps from the Saudi Arabian clerics. So you've got the Saudi Arabian clerics teaching this uh, Wahhabist version of Islam, which to a large extent, Saudi Arabia was exporting these clerics because they're a little bit too crazy, uh, a little bit too even strict in their interpretation for Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia's like, okay, let's push those guys there and they can do their thing there. Um, and that was also their experience, from my understanding, reading the history of uh, their relationship with bin Laden. Saudi Arabia kind of wanted to push bin Laden out and he, you know, that's the whole thing with Saudi Arabia. Uh, bin Laden was from Saudi Arabia, his family's from Saudi Arabia. He wanted to have the Gulf War be run differently. He actually wanted to fight Saddam Hussein and not have the Americans come and, you know, start establish military establishing base. military bases yeah. in Saudi Arabia and the right. Holy Land and all that. Um, so... Basically, in the late 90s, you have the Taliban largely controlling Afghanistan with a very localized agenda and bin Laden being like, I got no place to go. I've been sort of getting kicked out of this place and that place. He was in Sudan for a time. Yeah. Um, wow. Look at Afghanistan. I can definitely get on this, get on board with the Taliban and we can have some connections and I can do some good things for them and they can provide me with a safe haven. So Al-Qaeda, under bin Laden, rolled into Afghanistan because it was a very conducive place for them to hang out. And they had a much more of a worldview, anti-Western, knew exactly where the World Trade Center is, wanted to do all the things and attack America every chance they could get and right. you know, plan and execute their operations from there. Right. So that's sort of the lead up into 9-11. So you got the Taliban with a very local view of Afghanistan and maybe Pakistan. That's their area of concern. Um, yeah, they're just a bunch of refugee kids that aren't very worldly. Right. And yeah. you've, I've explained to you my affection for Ahmed Shah Massoud up in the Panjshir Valley, who right. was trying to raise the alarms and say, hey, this is going on and this is not a good thing for anyone come help us out because we're fighting a good fight here. And right. he, he got assassinated the day before 9-11. Yeah. So what, uh, I mean, so, so Ahmad Shah Massoud, he's kind of represented a more sort of secular, I mean, he wasn't secular exactly. I mean, they, they, you know, I think uh, he, you know, was a, he 
was a follower of Islam, but he was much more moderate in his views and much more pro-Western, uh, beneficiary of some CIA-backed resources during the war against the Soviets. Um, but uh, Minimal, right? They, uh, they would argue, and yeah. from my, what I can understand. A lot of the stuff that we, as a, America, and if you watch Charlie Wilson's War, a lot of the stuff we pushed went through the filter of the Pakistanis and went to various Afghan commanders that they sort of picked. And I think Ahmed Shah Massoud was not in that group. He yeah, was, was not in the good graces. Kind of, uh, uh, yeah. On his own to a large extent and still an incredibly um, effective commander and gave the Soviets uh, a handful based yeah. on what I've been able to study and read. So by the time that you came on the scene, so the Taliban was in retreat or did they, they just kind of went underground is my understanding after the U.S. sort of invaded and established a position in Kabul. Is that, is that essentially what happened? So I'm rolling in to do what I did with the Peace Council stuff 10 years after 9-11. Right. So... In that 10 years, the U.S. had done come in with Jawbreaker. and it's Jawbreaker. Jawbreaker was the first, you know, getting the Northern Alliance together um, and pushing into Kabul and, you know, fighting the Taliban and the Taliban retreat. And so, yes, the Taliban all got pushed into the hills of Afga uh, Pakistan and bin Laden got away in the hills of Tora Bora and all that stuff, all that history from the first couple of years of the Afghan war. Um, and then by the time I get there in 2011, um, the U.S. is starting to think about winding down its footprint, but it's largely the U.S. and coalition forces uh, that are there. This is the time of Hamid Karzai. He was the president when I was there. Um, and they're trying to build the Afghan National Army, the ANA. They're building the institutions of the Afghan government. Um, they're having the democracy. You're seeing the purple thumbs with the ink voting and or the thumbprint voting and all that. Um, so that's the time that I roll in. So at that time, when I was trying to negotiate with the Taliban that might be on the fence, it was uh, definitely a different world than it had been 10 years prior when it was just the Taliban in charge. Right. So Ahmad Shah Massoud was assassinated, but uh, we, the United States still enlisted the support of sort of like his, his old network. Yes. Uh, that, that was still very much alive and well, it sounds like, yes. after he was, was off the scene. Yeah. Um, and so that is sort of the coalition to the north that like the United States was was trying to rely upon to take back the country. Yeah, that, that was sense. the first foothold right. foothold in was basically going to what was, you know, the forces that Alma Shah Massoud had left when he got assassinated and then marrying those up with General Dostum over in Mazari Sharif, who had been a anti-Soviet commander or Mujahideen commander. Um, and then from there, kind of push through with forces to fight the Taliban. Right. And that's all, like, was initial it, stages of Operation Enduring Freedom. Right. Was it your experience that there was any sense of nationalism among Afghans? 
or were or were they more allegiant to their kind of the local like tribes they've been at war for a really long time they are fiercely independent they are very good fighters um, they're tired of war but a sense of nationalism not in the way that you and I would think about it right in our in our paradigm right um, again they're distrusting of the central government right to a large extent if you had to paint Afghans with a broad brush yeah um, I would say that in societies like that they are very much um, family centered and then two brothers will you know be at war with each other until they get threatened and then they're at war with the family next door mm much like the Hatfields and McCoys. Sure. Right? And then uh, that those families will be much at fighting with each other until their tribe is threatened. And then they're very... Tri so it's these concentric circles that kind of go out right. and extend. And when you're in a little valley in Nuristan, you're not thinking much about what's going on in Kabul and what Hamid Karzai or whoever the president is there is doing. That's not what affects your day-to-day. -day. Right. You're thinking much more local. Yeah. Well, especially when everything around you is a 15,000-foot peak. Right. I don't... I tend to be an optimistic person, but I'm not very optimistic on a democratic Afghanistan that marries well with the rest of the uh, world anytime soon. I can't imagine it. I, it doesn't seem like it's in the cards. Um, it's just for all the reasons mentioned earlier tough neighborhood lots of outside influences very tribal and ethnic in the, in their uh, perspectives and very understandably so i don't think it's going to be something that we're looking at and saying oh it's a mountain country it's about the same size it's now switzerland right well hey thanks for spending so much time with me um i'll uh how long was it I think we're at something like uh, an hour and 40 minutes almost. Thanks, Jason. All right, my pleasure, Nick. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you might be listening to it if you're not already. Also, check out my site at nickrroberts.com and subscribe to the newsletter there, which comes out on a monthly basis. It covers technology, product development, aviation, history, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Thanks for listening and have an awesome day.